Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Decoded podcast series, I'm Yaron Werber, Biotechnology Analyst at TD Cowan. I'm super excited to be joined today by John Murphy in this episode called Sussing Out the IRA to discuss how the Inflation Reduction Act will impact innovation in biotech. It's a very hot topic. John is the Chief Policy Officer and Healthcare Counsel at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, or BIO. He was previously an Assistant General Counsel at Pharma, an Associate at Hogan and Hartson, and Senior Consultant at McBee Associates. John, thanks for joining us. Uh, always great to see you. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really a crazy time right now. Lots to talk about. And it's very timely. We're recording this, uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, it's uh, mid-July 2023, just to give you a sense. And CMS recently came out with some guidance, so it's very timely. John, let me start by the, the Inflation Reduction Act has drawn a lot of attention some people think it's a friend. Some people think it's an enemy. I think it's a little bit more of a frenemy the way we look at it. There's some positive provisions for the industry, you know, really closing the donut hall. But let's be realistic. There's a lot of headwinds here uh, to innovation as well. When you're looking at it and Bio is looking at it and, you know, the four or 500 companies that are members of Bio are giving you feedback, what's the greatest risk to innovation uh, posed by this act? Yeah, so you're right. Um, it's hard for us to evaluate a couple of positives, which I'm sure we'll talk about, without sort of really honing in on the negatives. And and I'll say, you know, forefront is just the the presence of how the government has defined negotiating these products. I think the presence itself of the price controls transcend all of the other issues that we don't like about this as probably the premier um, obstacle because it. Uh, for for many of the investor community, it's not just the establisher products that are affected. I mean, this changes the paradigm for even small biotechs when they're looking at net present value calculations in a potential buyout or in a potential IPO for an asset category. Because as you see in the the, the way the Inflation Reduction Act price controls are 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 designed, you know, it's not that long into the future where the vast majority of products covered in the Medicare program end up get, being touched by this just because of the cumulative nature of the law. Right. That's absolutely. And it's a, it's a great point. And I got to tell you here on our side at TD Cowan, we're as a, as a franchise, as a biotech franchise, we've already really started incorporating our thoughts about what this could mean long term as to which companies we're ultimately going to be getting involved in. So when, you know, kind of broadly, which area of the bill is bio as an organization on behalf of the industry is really mostly focused right now on trying to lobby and, and try to, to improve or change near term? Yeah. So in the near term, sort of two tracks and, we, you know, there's, there's a discrete ask in each. So there's a regulatory track at CMS and there's a legislative track. You know, the, the, the regulatory track really initially was focused at trying to change aspects of the final guidance that related to how Medicare was negotiating the program. A couple of areas we had been focused on specifically resolved around, revolved around uh, the orphan drug interpretations. 
So, you know, many in the industry have been very concerned about the very stark contrast between a product that has an orphan designation that's approved for for only indications in that designation. That's the only piece under the law that qualify for the exemption. There had been asks for CMS to broadly interpret that to allow for a product that gains an additional designation, but that doesn't have approved indications in that designation to at least keep the, the exemption during the period of research and development that accompany that additional designation. Many people thought that CMS had the authority to do that in the guidance. Unfortunately, when the guidance came out, uh, CMS doubled down and basically said it had no indi- it had no authority to do so and actually was, was going to clarify that any product that falls outside of that very narrow single orphan designation and only approved indications in that designation, any anything else in that space falls out of the exemption, except for certain circumstances where you withdraw with a product. So, so the regulatory ask remains. I think we will continue to push CMS to update because it has been very clear that its final guidance only applies to year one, and they'll look to make revisions in year two. I'm not so optimistic about major revisions, but I think we do want to continue to push on the orphan drug side. On the legislative side, I would say there are a number of asks. On the top legislative ask, I think, is to change the uh, small molecule uh, disparity that uh, applies in the law. So right now, a small molecule product uh, is is potentially selected after seven years and then can be negotiated after nine years on the market, whereas a biologic is at 11 and 13. And I think broadly, the industry is looking to uh, increase the small molecule uh, years on the market to be at parity with the, with the, the large molecule. That, by the way, doesn't solve the problems under the IRA, but at a minimum, it creates a more equal landscape for investment, both in the small molecule and large molecule space, which we're seeing actually right now play out in the oncology space, given the predominance of small molecule research in, in oncology that now has a bias sort of against investment because of that shorter time frame. And so you, you raised uh, two great points. Let, let's actually talk about the second one first, the nine versus uh, 13. And at that point, as you know, as, as you mentioned, and for the listener, at that point, kind of seven years uh, into the lifespan of a small molecule or 11 years into a biologic, you already kind of have a two-year horizon into negotiations and price changes. It really doesn't leave a lot of time to monetize that either as a, as a DCF or the way these stocks really trade, uh, you know, on the, on the forward-looking PE. But you mentioned this is not something CMS can change, right? And we've we've done listening sessions together with CMS along with many other people. That's the first thing they say is, hold on, that's not for me. You got to go and address that with Congress. But that's in many ways also interlinked to PDUFA and to Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And so what's the chance and what's the appetite in Congress to take this on? I mean, is there any chance this is going to get revised or very unlikely? So I will say there has been, uh, with the IRA passage in the review mirror, there have been, I think, bipartisan receptivity to at least understanding that that dynamic causes a problem, particularly in the small molecule cancer space. So I think there is an openness to discussion across the aisle in in Congress about the need to make moderate uh, changes to the IRA in the future. Whether that happens in the next two years, I think, is a very different conversation. It's going to be politically challenging to do anything that affects the IRA 
in the wake of the presidential elections in 2024, because for those of you who you know follow the president somewhat closely, you, you'll notice that he uh, had a campaign speech last week and uh, a bunch of policy documents that came out that really built on the administration's uh, boastfulness of passing the IRA and bringing down drug costs. So I would say while uh, um, at, at a staff level and at a member level, there is an understanding of the problems that nine versus 13 dynamic has created. I think the broader political narrative in the next two years is going to make those changes um, a very significant uphill battle. So I, I wouldn't say I would bet much money on that change happening in the next two years. But I would say, you know, if you if you look at the ACA as a potential um, sort of base case for how this might work, you know, there were lots of incremental changes to the ACA in the out years that were politically feasible, that that you had a good data case to be made. And I think the industry now is focusing on how do we make as good a case as we can for not just the nine versus 13 change, but a host of other changes that, you know, we can we can certainly talk about that would make the law slightly less innovation negative. OK, that's, that's a great point. Let's go back. And the orphan drug exclusivity is a big, big hot potato for biotech, just given how much the sector traffics in this area. You mentioned year one versus year two and CMS's ability to interpret during development. Mm -hmm. Most of us have been really mostly focusing on upon approval, right? When you get the second approval with the same uh, new molecular entity, you lose your exclusivity. But you, you mentioned a lot more. You, you're talking about during development. So can you clarify that? Yeah. So CMS in the final guidance came out uh, with a number of explanations as to how they're going to apply the orphan drug exclusion. And what they've really said is, is, is there are two issues that I think they are wrong about, but nevertheless, they've they've stood fast on. One is this idea that if you were to obtain a second orphan drug designation, uh, for purposes of a research program, CMS views that as knocking you out of the orphan drug exclusion, even if you don't have an approved indication yet. And th and they they talk a lot in the guidance about how they feel like their hands are tied by the statutory text. Uh, I think it's a very conservative reading. I think there were other ways they could have gone about that, but they doubled down on that. The other issue, which I think you alluded to, your own, is when does the product start counting the nine or thirteen? What CMS says in the final guidance is the second anything related to that that act of moiety is approved by the FDA. That 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 represents a bigger problem, I think, in the cancer space because oftentimes we see product launches in very narrow applications, generally in the orphan space, while you're funding broader trials in an earlier stage or in a wider patient population. What we know now, uh, based on CMS's final guidance is that the second that fourth line indication or whatever gets approved by FDA, the clock begins to, s to count for the nine or the 13. Uh, and then if you if you have a subsequent approval that obviously knocks out the orphan indication, they're going to look back at the first date approval as the day that they're going to count for, for Medicare. So I think to your point about monetizing an investment, you know, oftentimes those early, you know, uh, early stage cancer approvals that are in a small subpopulation finance the the broader R and D in a, in a wider population, but your monetizable opportunity might be much lower if you catapult the product into a higher Medicare spend with that subsequent approval. 
Yeah, I mean, if you think about it from an innovation standpoint, you really disincentivizes completely any even filing a second orphan drug exclusivity indication and doing any work uh, off-label and development. Uh, essentially, at that point, you will basically shut down anything outside of the first approval. I think that's right. And and you are stuck with uh, a situation where you either hold back the approval and await studies in a broader population so you launch everything at once, or, you know, and this is probably more biased in the cancer space than any other, anywhere else, you just rely upon uh, compendia guidelines to carry the product in the broader off-label space and, and don't necessarily target a, a, a label indication for, for that NCCN or, or other compendia uh, space, and you just kind of float. Um, and, and I think that's bad for innovation, right? Because it disincentivizes the additional research that you, you naturally want companies to do. Yeah. What we're hearing from companies now increasingly is that they're going to do multiple development pathways at once, uh, which if you think about it is not staggered, it's expensive, it's fairly risky, and it doesn't allow them to sort of execute, increase their market cap, finance again and continue development. Um, and so it really kind of um, makes uh, operating company and financing company much harder. When the, the other key area of uncertainty that requires clarification is how CMS is going to calculate the maximal fair price for each drug. Um, that's something that they're beginning to flash out. We're gonna, they're going to start negotiating you know, in short order. There's going to be a lot of trade secrets and a lot of secretive information that the companies and sponsors are, are sharing, uh, both in the investment community and obviously the sponsors themselves want to have some clarity as to what's going on in case they're the, investing in a company or developing a follow-on product or a competitive product. What do we know so far and, and what do you foresee happening? Yeah, so I think that the, the actual calculation of the maximum fair price remains probably the most mystifying aspect of the law. And as you rightly point out, that's fairly concerning because the first 10 drugs are going to receive notifications from CMS in September, and we're sitting here in the middle of July, uh, and CMS just released um, last week a draft of the negotiation form that each uh, manufacturer is going to get. You know, we and many others are still sort of pouring over that, trying to articulate, you know, what we can glean from that information. But what we do know is CMS has uh, set forth a number of negotiation data elements in the guidance that manufacturers are going to need to submit. And a couple of things that you can draw from that that are concerning. One is, um, you know, there is a tremendous focus on a robust stream of R&D data that relate only to the selected product. And, you know, as you know, your own and, and many of the companies in the space know, oftentimes you're financing multiple R&D programs via the revenues from one approved product. And, and so, in other words, the cost of failure in those programs is amortized against those products that actually make it to the market. CMS has taken a much more narrow view, at least initially, in how it's going to look at negotiation data elements by only asking for information related to the specific product that's being negotiated. Uh, so it raises the question of how open they'll be to additional information about a $100 million loss in, you know, let's say Alzheimer's when your selected product is an anti-inflammatory. Uh, but, you know, that Alzheimer's product was spiked you, you internalize the cost and you have to bear it somewhere on the balance sheet. 
So I think that's a real concern that we still don't have a good answer to. The other the other issue I'll point out um, is that there, you know there has been some lore that CMS is going to use some of the billions of dollars it was provided under the IRA to contract with a third party to do some of the technical analysis of uh, maximum fair price calculation. It remains to be seen who that third party will be and what the marching orders will be for that entity. Again, something I would say is is hastens concern because all of this is going to play out in the next six to nine months. So, you know, government is not necessarily very nimble. So what happens, let's say, if a company, I'm going to make it up, is, is, is working on uh, an oncology asset or inflammation asset, and there was compound A, went through phase two, and had some tox. And now they're advancing a backup uh, into phase one. And if you think about it, they've spent, yes, yeah, so you can argue compound two has benefited from all the initial R&D spending on compound A, compound B is, you know, as a backup. But then is CMS going to start clocking, okay, so you just started compound B today, you're starting from zero cents, or are you going to be able to say, no, look at it, this is just a follow-on extension, we've already kind of already in three, four, five hundred million dollars in. Yeah, I think, I think you're going to see manufacturers attempt to quantify that as, you know, broad-based R&D spend, because I think they have to. I think they owe it to their company and their investor base to try and make as good a case as they can to CMS to justify where a price is in relation to the expenditures associated with the company to get a product into the clinic and and then ultimately to the bedside. And if it takes four products in the clinic, you know, and and you see this in a lot of, you know, multi-portfolio research programs in the bigger companies and even to a certain extent, smaller companies, I think it's it's going to be something every company pushes to show CMS the math. And now the, the the real question is how much of that math does CMS internalize in its own worldview? Because you've got to remember the the real concern here is that the law is very prescriptive that CMS will ultimately make one offer. Manufacturer then has 30 days to provide a response. Uh, and then the way the law looks, at least, is CMS then can come back and say, here's our final offer, take it or leave it. You know, it doesn't leave an enormous amount of room for back and forth. Now, CMS has a, a bit provided for some additional meetings in the final guidance, but the time frame remains very compressed, right? And if you think about HTA negotiations in Europe, those generally go about a year. It, it's just not going to be the case here. And, and, you know, so I think CMS is it's been a little bit purposefully oblique on that case because I think they want to give themselves as much flexibility as possible in this first round. So what, one of the other questions, th- there's three different tier thresholds, right, under the law. Yeah. Can you re- review what those are? And again, those are the minimal discounts. CMS doesn't have an upper ceiling or lower trough, whatever floor as to where they go ultimately. Can you just review those two? Yeah. So effectively, CMS has been defined under the statute ceiling prices that they have to at least bring a product below in order for the negotiation to be uh, qualified by the statute. And it phases in. So you have these short monopoly products, which have been on the market um, for nine years or less. These The middle uh, um, sort of tier uh, between that nine years and 16 years, and then these long, what they're called long monopoly drugs. This is, by the way, these these terms are just created by the statute. It's not like you guys would see that in a normal research report, which are 16 years or more on the market. And the ceiling price goes down each time a, a particular molecule hits that benchmark. And something often not discussed, because this hasn't 
gone out and CMS guidance yet is actually the statute requires CMS to renegotiate drugs when they hit these milestones. So uh, a product may get negotiated early phase and it, it's, let's say, 66% or 80% of non-FAMP is the seal- statutory ceiling price. My sense is CMS will try and negotiate below that. But then once a product ages into that next benchmark, the law requires CMS to renegotiate the product so that it goes below that new benchmark. Mm-hmm. And and the reason that has not been discussed very much is because CMS, given the time constraints in the rulemaking, did not yet propose how they're going to conduct that process. They indicate they're going to do that next year. I understand why they're doing that. It's you know it, it's something that won't happen this in in the 2026 uh, phase. They'll have to wait. But, um, you know, if you're in the boardroom and you know your product is getting selected year one uh, or even year two or year three, it is a material question. What is the renegotiation process going to look like and how is CMS going to conduct it? What's the time frame? And, and that's actually something just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge to you, you know, Bio has been raising when we have one on one meetings with CMS is you you we we recognize you all are under a very specific time crunch which was through no fault of your own but our companies are making development decisions based upon the entire scope of the law 10 years from now so understanding the the renegotiation process is almost as important for these companies as understanding how they'll be selected in the first space so just re- remind us it's it, the, the three thresholds and one would imagine that let's put aside the three time frames for now. There is a, there is based on a an evaluation. There's going to be some kind of an objective, theoretically objective price. That yep, here's what this product is worth, regardless of when it is, right? Yeah. So how does you know as you kind of think about how do they move the lever? Is it that they're thinking, look, here is the, a product will used to be two hundred dollars a bottle. Let's say we now need to do the first hit the first tranche, which is what twenty five percent down. Yeah, and so okay, so now the two hundred is one fifty um, or one sixty, but and, and then once you age into the next tranche, which is what down thirty five, then yep. you go up to thirty five, and then you go down to sixty, or is it going to have a different qualifier, or is it going to depend on what's going on at the market at that point? Yeah, I think that's an area. You, you ask a really good question, and that's an area we have little insight in from how CMS is thinking about it. I mean, many there's sort of two different camps I've seen emerge and, and people hi- hypothesizing how CMS is going to make these offers. You have a number of folks in the health policy community who talk about it's likely that objectively CMS will be best suited to kind of try and target a price right around that ceiling price because that's what the law prescribes. It gives them cover. It takes some of the subjectivity out of it and potentially lessens the likelihood that that that, that will be challenged. And, and we could put a pin in that question about challenge for a second, because I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about this, but there are judicial preclusion provisions of the law. I think many of them are not insurmountable, so we can talk about that a little bit. But there's another camp um, that I have seen emerge where there are people hypothesizing that CMS will make a very, very aggressively low initial offer and require a manufacturer in its response to justify the need to bring the product up. Um, and CMS has lots of data to bring to bear that's not necessarily publicly available. They understand the rebating um, in the Part D space in particular. They understand kind of where products are classified, how they're actually reimbursed. So there's there's other folks that are articulating that you know they, they could go real aggressive. 
you know, my my personal view is that that is harder to defend for CMS, right? It is is just picking a number that's very low without having some objective criteria to justify why. And I have not been convinced yet in the current guidance that they have clearly articulated an objective criteria for going very low. My feeling is that they'll be closer to the ceiling price and then in a renegotiation circumstance, it's kind of the same because that they can point to, well, the law requires the price to be X for this product at this age, so we're going to bring it down. But I, I, I do think they may, and I take them at their word, that they're going to really look at this first year and the 10 drugs and how the marketplace responds to the negotiation data elements, how the marketplace responds to the ultimate prices. And I could see them titrating their approach um, as this goes on. I mean, they've been very open that they plan to revise guidance for the for the subsequent years. So I, I could very easily see CMS coming out and saying, well, we've tried it here. We think there's more room to get more value for the American public. Because again, remember, this is going to play out during an election year. Okay. That, that's a great point. You know, the, a lot of the questions that we get is, this is relating to Medicare. Part D goes into effect 2026. Right for orals, Part B for um, if it's for orals and, and self-injectables. Part uh, B uh, goes into effect in 2027. Right, and what does it cover? Both managed Medicare and the historical sort of fee-for-service Medicare, or just clarify that because that's a, that's a point yeah. of a lot of confusion. Yeah, it, it covers all of the Medicare uh, programs. How it is inserted into the managed Medicare space, I think, is still being worked out with the plans. But it, it's clear that the maximum fair price needs to be made available, uh, or I guess, or better, right? I mean, I'm sure CMS is never going to stand in the way of getting a better price than the maximum fair price. But the maximum fair price is going to need to be offered in all of the Medicare space. So you, you rightly point out, you know, we're going to start to see this tested in Part D, and it's going to matriculate over to Part B. As, as, in, as CMS gets more experience with this program. But that's going to be a challenging transition, right? Because mm-hmm. medic, uh, an oral solid dosage form, you know, given at a pharmacy is a very different payer environment than an injectable in an outpatient setting or, you know, in a, in a clinic. So it, it's, it's something that I think CMS is going to have to do some additional guidance on to talk about how they plan to roll this out in the Part B space. And we've already started talking to the agency about when are you planning to do that? How do we give Part B pl- Part B companies advance notice of your anticipated approach, uh, which we just don't have yet? Yeah, it's the complexity of the, of the healthcare system specifically related to PBMs and formularies. So we all know that the, uh, the actual sticker price is not the real price, right? So if you need, if CMS needs to do at least a 25% reduction in the first, you know, in the first trials, the first time period, uh, most products, uh, even oral oncology now in competitive areas, um, oftentimes have more than 25% gross to net or already at 25% gross to net. So if the price, let's say, if they, let's say if they do 25%, so that $200 bottle is now 160 but realistically, I'm just going to make it up. Let's say the PBMs are getting it right now on behalf of their plan sponsors for 150 so lower price. Does that mean the PBMs can still do their thing, um, or the or or and, and try to negotiate further concessions and further rebates or no? Oh yeah, I think they will attempt to. Yes, because uh, the the law requires 
the product that's negotiated to be available on the formulary, but it stops short of saying it needs to be first tier or it needs to be offered without utilization controls. And so my sense and my operating, uh, you know, uh, opinion is that the PBMs are still going to look at the products as they do any other product in their formulary, and they're going to ask for some ability to negotiate um, supplemental rebates or just you know base late rebates to 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 jockey for formulary position. I think that that will still happen. Um, you know, I guess it, I guess there are questions. You know, it, there could be manufacturers who are in a position where they don't want to agree to that and they're going to rely on the law's requirement that a product be subject to formulary and perhaps their product has a unique characteristic that even if subject to utilization management, the vast majority of doctors are going to want to push for it uh, and override and in states that have fail first or uh, states that have, you know, physician prevail requirements, you know, they could still put a successful portfolio together. But my sense is that's probably a little bit of an outlier. Um, I, I still think that PBMs in this space are going to want to go after as much as they can, these products, or, or really any products, right? Particularly because you look at, you're going to be looking at a lot of spaces where you're going to have brand to brand competition. One's going to be negotiated, the other's not, um, and there's still going to be price um, elasticity there for for products to try and get preferred formulary placement. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, again, it's puts a lot of onus on really developing innovative, definitely best in class, if not first in class product. And access is obviously becoming a huge, huge uh, barrier even in the U.S. now, and obviously continuing to get worse in, in Europe right. and Japan. Now, let's talk about the, the frenemy part here. The, there is a benefit here. The friend is that they did cover the donut hole, which we all know uh, companies in biotech and, and biopharma have contended with by doing a lot of patient support programs. Certainly in the first quarter, obviously increased SGNA, but ultimately once they covered it, volumes kind of went up. So the good news is they are covering the donut hole. So in that sense, uh, what we've seen is some of the headwinds before in Q1 are going to get more abated. The challenge now is that, um, and that's back to the frenemy slash enemy part, is now this is going to require uh, part D plans to cover 60% of the catastrophic uh, costs starting in 2025, um, up from 15% now. And of course, I believe catastrophic is what? Anything over two to two and a half grand, you know, yeah. monthly at that point. So if you think about any innovative product or a couple of products, you're you're running into that right away, starting in January or certainly in Q1. So at that point, now the plan is on the hook for 60% and they're going to have to give that to uh, transition that over to the sponsor. So at that point, you know, the game has been so far... You can win if you're a company either by providing a high cost, high rebate product, or you have to have the, you know a lower you know price kind of option. Now we're beginning to think if you, if you're on the hook for sixty percent of the cost, a sponsor or a plan, you don't really care about the rebates as much anymore. You have a lot of grants to make up, so you're probably going to move to the lowest cost alternative, and and probably lock down and really restrict access and formularies. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and actually this was a point that was uh, brought up in the guidance as well. And the final guidance. So there's long been this concern. So on the one hand, there's a big win, right? So it has been an industry priority. It's been a patient community priority to provide some cap on out-of-pocket spending for beneficiaries, because obviously under the donut hole and then into catastrophic, you had patients paying 5% of catastrophic into infinity, right? And somebody in a high-cost therapeutic area, that was a lot of money. So now you do have, starting in 2025, a $2,000 out-of-pocket cap for beneficiaries in the Part D program. 
Um, and that is a profound win on the patient side. But you, you, you raise exactly the right point that everybody has been worried for, that Congress basically paid for that cap by saying, well, fine, the plans just pay more. Uh, in the back end, the government's not going to reinsure it all. And so the plan liability went way up. I think there is uh, already uh, approaches at CMS to ask the agency, well, how are you going to police access given the fact that uh, on the one hand, you've given patients the benefit of uh, capping out-of-pocket costs, but that is hollow if patients have to jump through every hoop imaginable just to get access to their therapeutic. And uh, the agency understands that and has has acknowledged that that's going to be something they have to figure out a way to police. I think they're, the specifics behind how they're going to police that has been a little bit have been a little bit hollow thus far. You know, they talk a little bit about well, you know, ASPE, which is another agency under HHS, has some ability to do uh, analytics in the formulary space. They can police it there, but it's really not satisfactory. And and you're right. There's a tremendous concern, particularly in crowded classes. There's just a race to quite frankly, least costly alternative, right? Uh, and providing coverage. And and only, it, it, particularly in 2025, there'll be no negotiated drugs. So in other words, you don't have guaranteed formulary placement for even the 10 that will come on in the Part D space in 2026. So I think that'll be the first year for everybody to really take a look at this and say, what does the access landscape look like in the wake of the out-of-pocket changes? And and I, I noted at the beginning, you know, CMS acknowledged this in the guidance that came out the other day or the other week, where they, they acknowledged they're going to have to work to look at formulary practices in the light of uh, this. And I think they'll do some additional rulemaking. They plan to do some of that in the fall, is my understanding. So we're going to have to be laser focused on that because it can't be that we got a win on one hand, but really it's it's very hollow on the other hand. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And part B is largely excluded from that, right? By by yeah. virtue of how the economics really work. Yeah, exactly. And 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 honestly, you know, I think the part B space is probably an area that uh, everybody will look at to try and fix some of the out of pocket um, exposure in that space down the road. But given managed Medicare and the way those plans have operated, you know, I think it it's not necessarily as big an uh, an issue uh, mm-hmm. in the broader Medicare population right now. Yeah. And the ASP plus six or ASP plus 4.3, that's not changing. No, no. And actually that, you know, it, it does uh, raise a question, you know, for those products that do get whacked in the Part B space is something that will have to be discussed. You know, the docs stand to lose in that, in that circumstance where functionally, right? I mean, obviously rebating aside and all that, but, you know, you, you do have a situation where if you see a Part B plant, a Part B product in the out years that gets a big, significant price decrease because of the IRA, uh, that four point five percent goes down for the doc. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, you know, they were not very vocal during the entire legislative process trying to stand up on that issue. But it, it remains an issue that I think docs are going to see some material change in, you know, in five, ten years. Well, the the real question, if you think about, it, there's so many PD ones right now. There's so many anti TNFs. There's so many IL. IL 12s, 23s, there, there are a lot of options. Some drugs oftentimes are considered to be a little bit better than others. A lot of times from what we hear, access really drives utilization. But the real question on a, um, on a buy and bill sort of you know landscape is when Keytruda gets negotiated down, do you just start using more Optivo? Yeah, I think that you're asking the right question. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what payer practices begin to evolve to because you know, I, I imagine, you know, the, all of 
you know, the, the good analyst houses out there, I know you guys too, I mean, everybody has already done their projections for what are the drugs that are most likely to get selected in the first three years. Um, and I have to imagine that, you know, there's only really three main payers anymore and they're all very sophisticated and they're all probably looking at those lists and starting to internalize the, what are our options, uh, to your point, you know, in the cancer space, what are our options in the TNF space? You know, unless you're in a scenario where you have just a, a an incredibly better alternative from the data, you know, if they're all sort of reverting closely to the mean, you're going to see, I think, payers starting to interest to practices to to just see where they can get the best rebate dollar. Yeah, I mean, we, we've we've heard panels talking about how now I'm shifting over to the practice management side that oncology groups are going to consider con- continue to integrate and probably get acquired by hospital systems. Or, or private equity fund. But in, in any case, you, you are seeing that just massive consolidation is, is going to lead to a much more sophisticated management of the dollar that ultimately probably, I have to say that as a, as a patient advocate, it probably doesn't benefit the patients in the long run uh, at a macro level, uh, but it's going to ensure that the PBMs can still squeeze out the earnings that they're going after you know, on a quarterly basis for their investor class. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, again, this is a this is a totally corollary point, but the cost of medical education in the U.S. is so astronomically high relative to their ability to pay back the loans. Yeah, now going to compress the infusion, the infusion clinic, you know, rheumatology, neuro, and oncology segments too. Let's talk about the friends again. So one of the big positives is CMS has now confirmed that cell and gene therapies are going to fall under the plasma derived drug exclusion. And so a CAR-T won't get negotiated, an ex vivo lenti cell therapy, gene therapy won't get uh, negotiated. Uh, what about an adeno, an associated adeno gene therapy? Yeah, I think that this CMS uh, circumstance here is they're treading very carefully on how much information they provide on that exclusion because you have a number of cell and gene therapies and then derivative therapies that all derive from either blood plasma or just whole blood and lots and lots more development in that space. And I think CMS is very carefully wording its uh, interpretations so it doesn't inadvertently uh, create a massive uh, loophole. That, that's just my speculation, obviously not speaking to with, with full knowledge of how CMS is doing this. But you know, I, I think early on, there was a reticence amongst the broader industry to ask for clarification because there was a concern that CMS would narrowly clarify that exemption into, you know, maybe just the the factor spaces or just sort of the the very you know traditional um, plasma derived uh, space. But um, I think it was helpful for CMS to to provide a little bit more context because it it it, it obviously gives uh, the cell and gene therapy space uh, some room to breathe. But I am cautious to say. I think beyond what they've talked about, I, I do think CMS is going to take more of a case-by-case look at anything that doesn't fall squarely within that exception they've they've already outlined because uh, I think they don't necessarily know uh, where all the science is going. And that's not a commentary on their education. It's just I think the science is evolving so quickly that they're very worried about inadvertently making this thing huge when they, when they have articulated they think it's a narrow exception. Makes sense. Let me actually circle back quickly and um, go back to the orphan drug exclusivity. So there is the TTR space, both on the peripheral neuropathy and the cardiomyopathy space. Peripheral neuropathy, for example, there's already been two drugs approved from Onilum and Patro and, and uh, Vitrisaran or Vutra. 
Um, obviously, AstraZeneca and Ionis are hot in pursuit now. And, um, you know, in short order, hopefully, cardiomyopathy indication is going to be uh, approved as well. All of those already have their orphan drug exclusivities, essentially. Does that mean that they're all now going to trigger this? Or is this going to be something that o- only starts sort of, you, you have a, a grandfathering process? Yeah, I don't think necessarily CMS is looking at a grandfathering process. I think that they're going to look at these things uh, de novo, um, regardless of where they sit. Um, you know, the TTR space, RNAi uh, more broadly, is also a good base case for arguing why small molecules aren't necessarily easy to develop and manufacture, uh, which was the baseline justification for treating them differently than than biologics. But you know, that's that's a different different point. Um, but I think they're all in a in a space where they're they're going to have to really, you know, each company at a portfolio level is going to have to be evaluating what they think their IRA exposure is. Uh, with the understanding that heretofore CMS has been extremely conservative and how it's interpreting its authority under the statute. And so, um, you know, those those guys uh, who have more than one orphan indication across an active moiety, even if they're separated by dual NDCs, are still going to be needing to look at the applicability of this in their portfolio. And so when you're thinking about um, the two sides of uh, uh, TTR amyloidosis, the polyneuropathy and the cardiomyopathy, are those two different indications or are they two different manifestations of the same indication? Yeah. So I actually, I I don't know specifically how FDA has defined that. Um, I haven't looked into it as to whether or not they they treat that as one in orphan designation or two. But I, I do think that is uh, a sort of good example of why we think CMS shouldn't have been so narrow in its approach to this. Because if you look at those two products, you know, I think I just saw um, a review, you know, where John Mariganori talked about bringing that company up. And, you know, that was 20 years mm-hmm. of work and development to get those two indications, which are very small patient populations. Um, you know, and I think CMS needs to evaluate, and Congress really should have done a better job evaluating the challenges facing uh, rare and orphan disease research because it, it it approached it as, well, what we can't have, uh, and the reason the orphan drug exemption was written the way it was is because they really didn't want a product that had one or two orphan indications, but then some mega blockbuster uh, population that got itself out from negotiation. There was one or two products that you all probably know that were, were sort of the focal point of Congress's you know, desire to make a very narrow exemption, but they, you know, they in that case they sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater by saying, well, really, anybody who's doing targeted research in the orphan space is now on notice that um, a different research program can knock you out. Yeah. So the next question is um, the whole concept of dosage forms, strengths, and uh, the concept of equid, uh, the same active uh, moiety. So, for example, when you look at Regeneron's ILEA, they recently developed the high-dose 8-milligram formulation versus the, the approved 2-milligram two, two formulation, and that data um, showed a dramatic efficacy improvement. But are they going to ultimately get negotiated as the same aflibercept active moiety regardless of the formulation? And it's also relevant to IV versus sub-Q. Yeah, so CMS has been fairly clear on this point, although I think they're wrong. Uh, and I think this is an area most ripe for someone to challenge CMS's approach in the future. We'll, we'll have to wait and see if that happens. But CMS has taken the position 
that any product that shares an active moiety or active ingredient with a negotiation eligible product is going to be lumped into the negotiation paradigm and they're going to extrapolate the, the, the maximum fair price application across the dosage forms, across the indication or across the, uh, the vial size, across the um, uh, uh, indications. So, uh, you know, that's a pretty comprehensive approach. I think it's inconsistent with the statute in the sense that um, a newly developed product that gets approved by FDA under a separate national drug code, uh, separate BLA, separate NDA, the, that product will not have been on the market for nine years or 13 years. Uh, but CMS is taking the position that it nevertheless is subject to negotiation because a precursor product shares an active moiety that is subject to negotiation. I, I, I think that's flatly wrong. Uh, I think many people in town share that view with me, but CMS has nevertheless uh, doubled down on that interpretation in the final guidance. And uh, so I, I, I just, I can't help but think that that's something that would be ripe for any company that is selected uh, to try and challenge, because I think it's a little bit outside the scope of authority CMS has. Yeah. So Merck and Bristol are now, were the first wave of litigators against the IRA. What legs do they have to stand on and what in what way do you does would the industry really push back and challenge this? Yeah, so right now there are um, there there are four pieces of litigation that are challenging the drug price negotiation provisions. Um, all of them are constitutionally based challenges. So you have Merck and Bristol. Um, then there's a challenge from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and one from Pharma, um, our sister association across town here. Um, I think all of them have made very good. Uh, articulated arguments that relate to uh, speech aspects of the law that, you know, in, in, and uh, that relate to some of the fines associated uh, with uh, the negotiation. And, you know, my view, and, and I've litigated a number of these cases in the past in my career, you know, the constitutional challenges against a statute passed by Congress are always an uphill battle. Uh, courts provide a significant degree of deference to Congress in the laws it passes. Um, but I think in this case, what you see is four separate organizations bringing somewhat similar constitutional challenges. And that should really say something to you about how much uh, of a problem the law places on a number of the areas. So if you take, for example, um, the fines associated with a manufacturer deciding not to agree to the final offer from CMS, you not only have uh, what could be uh, upwards of 90% of US-based revenue confiscated, uh, but there's additional civil monetary penalties, which could trigger under the federal uh, healthcare program laws, additional, uh, uh, additional investigations and potentially expulsion from participation in Medicare by the program. So, um, you know, I do think it's a credible argument that it it cannot be a fair exchange of uh, ideas and uh, a, a credible negotiation when one party, the manufacturer, isn't really able to walk away from the table. That looks to me a lot more like a taking, uh, which is, is articulated by a couple of these lawsuits because it's really the government coming in and saying, we're only going to pay you X. And in a normal capitalist environment, the government does have the authority to say, we're only going to pay you X, but many people have the ability to say, okay, that's fine. I say no, and I'll just forego uh, my contract with the government. But in this case, you just don't have that um, luxury because uh, 
the way the healthcare system is structured, um, so many things relate to your uh, pricing with the government that being a component of the Medicare negotiation program sort of not easily pulled out. Uh, maybe, you know, in, in certain rare cases where you have pediatric only, only indications, you weren't looking for the Medicare program to begin with, or or sort of, uh, you know, maybe there's a case to be made in, in certain markets like the obesity market. But I, I think for the general company, you can't really walk away from Medicare. And so uh, I think that's a good argument to make. Whether that kills the IRA negotiation program, I think is still, we're, we're still going to have to wait and see. You know, we haven't seen the government's response yet in any of these cases, um, and we haven't gotten a view into how any of the four different district court judges are going to look at this. But, um, you know, I, I also think that these are not the only four pieces of litigation that will come out of this. I, my sense is now that the guidance is finalized and the list will be published in September, you may see uh, some additional challenges based on CMS's authority. And that CMS authority will be challenged. What specifically will be challenged? Their ability to then set the price? So I think I think one is is some of its interpretations under the guidance. So as you know, as we talked about the active moiety issue before, I think that's probably the most ripe. Um, you know, there had been a, a sort of ban on disclosure of information in the original guidance that would have been ripe for a challenge that CMS actually I think smartly took out uh, because they recognized they were vulnerable to some sort of a First Amendment challenge in the in the case of their interpretation of the guidance. But nevertheless. Um, you know, I think that the active moiety issue is going to be one. I also think, you know, w- what will be interesting to see is if CMS makes modifications to the guidance for year two or year three, um, what does that do for a company that was subjected to the original guidance in year one? And how do they look at their obligations under the initial guidance versus the obligations required of a company in year two or year three? And does that does that provide a change in um, you know, how a company might think about challenges? But you know that'll take a little bit of time. You know, the one thing I will say is, you know, I think constitutional challenges at a broader level are the kind that are likely to take down the entire negotiation program if they are successful. Whereas an as you know an as applied challenge to CMS is is going to delay things, but ultimately get CMS a slap. And they might have to go back and relook at these things. Now that that could still be a meaningful win, like for instance, in the case of the Active Moiety situation, if if it happens. Um, but you know, I just think you have to look at them in two different ways. All right, terrific, John. Let me go now into my favorite part of each podcast. It's a little bit more personal, so we can really kind of get to know our guests. If you had any superpower, what would it be? Oh, I've always wanted to be able to fly because I hate flying on commercial airlines, and so in my mind. I would be able to fly places on my own. And so how do you deal with a service provision? Who's going who's to offer you drinks when you're flying? Well, that's a good question. I've never really thought about that. I guess I'd have to be able to fly with a cadre of, of folks. So maybe some sort of a superpower to bring everybody with me. That'd be pretty pretty useful. Yeah. And if you had to change one thing in your childhood, what would it be? Uh, that's a good question. I think I would have played more sports. Because I only played ice hockey growing up. It was the only thing I played. Not a lot of ice hockey being played here by this 42-year-old guy in D.C. Uh, would have been nice to have played other sports. You grew up in Wisconsin. So ice hockey was an integral part of life. It was all year round when I was a kid. All year round. Great, John. As always, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. 
Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.